0: I'd like to uh, welcome everybody to our 2019 uh, CAP seminar. Thanks for joining in. This is Bill Stock. I'm one of the partners here at Clasco. We are going to be running the webinar, uh, uh, taking questions through the chat box that you can see there, uh, we hope, on the right side of your screen. If you put questions in those boxes, we'll see them. We'll try and work those in. We'll try and answer some at the end. If there are any questions that don't get asked, do feel free to email any one of the presenters uh, here today. So I'd like to introduce my colleagues who will be speaking with me, my partner Elise Fialkowski.
1: Good afternoon, everyone.
0: And my partner, Michelle Madera. Hello. All right, wonderful. So uh, least let's go ahead and get our uh, podcast started here. Uh, why don't we talk about uh, what is going to stay the same for those of us who have been through this H-1B lottery before?
1: Okay. There are several things that are staying the same. We still have the same filing deadline. So our filing deadline is between April 1st and April 5th. April 1st is on a Monday this year. Um, We're working with many of our clients to ensure that we submit as quickly as possible. Many clients want to submit directly on April 1, even though cases can be accepted through April 5th. We do have some clients, however, who actually decide that they want their cases received on April 2nd because of the huge volume of applications often sent in on the first. In the past couple of years, um, literally the news stations have um, published pictures of caravans of FedEx and uh, UPS trucks lining up. So we may wanna consider filing on the first or the second. Um, So what does that mean for us? We need to work on these cases and identify people early. One of the reasons why we are working on these cases now is that a certified labor condition application or LCA from the Department of Labor is required for any H-1B filing. It generally takes the Department of Labor seven days to certify an LCA, and the closer we get to April 1, often the longer it takes Department of Labor to either certify the LCA, or we often see problems with the Department of Labor website to actually submit that LCA. So what else stays the same? Our master's cap and regular cap numbers remain the same, So there's 20,000 H-1Bs allocated each year to the master's cap and the regular cap remains at 65,000. We also have no new regulations in several areas. For example, we have no new regulations for H-4EADs, the 2015 regulations stay intact even though the regulatory agenda since December 2017 has proposed to rescind the H-4EAD. At this time, however, there is no proposed rule which would need to go through notice and comment. What else stays the same? No new regulations for specialty occupation, but we will be talking about new RFEs and decisions questioning specialty occupation. The definition of employer and employee also remains the same under the regulations, but there was a new policy memo um, effective February 22, 2018, imposing heightened evidentiary requirements for third party work sites that impacts the employer-employee relationship, requiring contracts, work orders, itineraries and the like. Uh, similar to previous requirements, but actually heightened scrutiny at this time. So Michelle, do you wanna talk about uh, some regulations that actually are proposed or even in effect
2: now? Sure, sure. So um, a proposed regulation was released earlier in this year, and comments were due on January 2nd, 2019 for the H-1B cap specifically. Um, 814 comments were submitted, and one week later, the rule was actually finalized and sent to OMB. The final rule was posted today, and it will be published tomorrow, um, to take effect on April 1st, because the goal of this new rule is for it to affect this year's H-1B cap. Um, So it was honestly released about an hour ago, so I quickly read it, um, all 215 pages, um, as quickly as I could, so I can uh, talk a little bit more about it today. But the rule is kind of where we expected it to be. So um, I'm gonna talk about that a little bit. The first thing that's gonna be a change that's effective for this year's H-1B cap is a change to the lottery procedure. So currently USCIS will conduct the U.S. master's degree lottery. So as Elise mentioned, um, if somebody has a master's degree from a U.S. university, they are subject to that extra 20,000 H-1Bs available. So currently that lottery for the 20,000 is conducted and anybody who isn't selected gets pushed into the regular cap lottery for the 65,000 H-1Bs that are available. So basically, if you have a U.S. master's degree, um, currently, you had slightly better odds because you were um, reviewed in both lotteries. The proposed rule is going to change that order. So what will happen is that the lottery will be conducted on all H-1B filings for the 65,000, including all the people with U.S. master's degrees. Then, they will take anybody who is not selected in that lottery with a U.S. master's degree and place them in the second lottery for the 20,000 H-1Bs available for people with U.S. master's degrees. So, you know, you're probably saying to yourself, oh, well, they're all lotteries. Does this really make a difference? And it actually will. The estimate is that 16% of people with U.S. master's degrees will get selected, 16% more, Um, will get selected um, with this change in procedure. That comes out to over 5,000 H-1Bs available for um, people with U.S. master's degrees. The reason for this shift relates back to an executive order for the Buy American, Hire American um, rule. And what that was is to, increase the number of H-1Bs and other um, immigration categories for for skilled workers. So the preference here is to get more people who have U.S. master's degrees, H-1Bs, as opposed to opening it up to anybody who has any bachelor's degree. Um, And so that is why the government is changing that order. Um, Since the rule was Um, posted today for publishing tomorrow, that will take effect on April 1st. So this H-1B cap season, the lottery will be uh, rearranged. And I'm gonna talk a little bit more um, about some challenges to that that, um, at the end of this um, section. But I also wanna talk about the other change that's gonna take effect with the, um, with this proposed, well, this final rule that'll be taking effect. It's called the pre-registration process, and this is probably a pretty drastic change, um, but it's not gonna happen this year. Um, What's going to, what this change will do is it will have an employer complete a registration form electronically for anybody it wants to sponsor each one before for the cap, and then anybody who is selected in the lottery will then go on to have to have a full H-1B petition filed on their behalf. So the goal is to shift um, some of the burden and lower it. It's a big cost-saving mechanism for both the government and and for employers, um, and that is a big focus of, of what the rule talked about because now the, instead of the government receiving you know, 200,000 H-1Bs that it needs to store through and conduct the lottery, it would be an electronic form that's submitted and then the lottery is just conducted off of that. Um, this requirement, um, this change will actually be suspended for this year. A big concern in many of those 800 comments that were received is that the government will not be able to get the technology in place um before april one of this year they would only have two months to do that um and that's just not enough time and if there were any issues with the technology it could have very drastic effects for employers and for the beneficiaries of those h1bs um so that is something that um we will expect to happen in the next for next year um and um the current assessment is that there's the pre registration will only collect very minimal information. So it will be just enough to identify who the petitioner is, who the beneficiary is, and what the job is to avoid any um, duplicate filings and to be able to match it with the ultimate H 1B petition that is filed on somebody's behalf. Okay? Um, and so that has already been suspended for this year, as I mentioned. So, as you can imagine, there are some challenges with these this um, new rule that's coming out, okay? Um, the first is that there's some concern that this goes against what the statutory, statutory requirements of the H-1B lottery are. For instance, um, the, the, the law dictates that H, the H-1B lottery is accepts cases in the order in which a petition is filed. The pre-registration process is actually not a petition. It's just an electronic form that's being submitted. And so there are some concerns that this is actually contrary to what the law dictates. This came up in the comments um, and, you know, again, I just quickly read them, but, but the government basically says we have authority to say what a petition is and so, you know, too bad, <laughs> to put it politely. Um, so uh, that's gonna be, um, I think, a, a big issue that needs to be sorted out. And we do anticipate um, that to be a uh, possibly litigated in the future. In terms of the order of the lottery, um, that's also a, uh, a big issue that we anticipate litigation on. The reason being that the master's cap is actually an exemption from the regular cap. And that exemption applies until the point that the master's cap is exhausted, which is why that the master's cap has to be done first, and then once that master's cap is exhausted, the exemption no longer applies. Changing the order cancels out that exemption um, because it doesn't, it, it, it just reverses it. So um, we also anticipate that that to be an issue, as it also is contrary to the the statutory language of the H-1B rules. Um, And again, these issues were raised during the comments, Um, since there were over 800 comments and it only took them a week to review them all, there is a lot of concern already um, that The government did not pay attention to all of the comments and address them substantively. Substantially, so we are um, looking to address those uh, once the rule is published as well. Okay. Um, And now, you know, we talked a lot about some of the changes. um, And now, you know, how what to anticipate with these changes, and you know, with the H1B filings in general for this season. Yeah, so we expect um,
1: that there's going to be several key issues for filings under the cap this year. Um, We expect that um, the government will continue to question whether or not the filing is for a qualifying H-1B specialty occupation. Now let's remember the definition of specialty occupation. The underlying basis for the definition is that a four year bachelor's degree or its equivalent in a certain field is required. And there are four prongs allowable under the regulation that the bachelor's or higher degree is normally the minimum requirement, that the degree requirement is common in the industry in parallel positions. The the employer normally requires a degree and that the duties are so specialized and complex that the knowledge required is usually associated with the attainment of that degree. Increasingly, we see USCIS questioning whether or not the underlying position is in fact a specialty occupation. Um, And this happens in several different forms. One of the questionable occupations, for example, is computer programmers. Um, USCIS has been looking at the Occupational Outlook Handbook. If the Occupational Outlook Handbook indicates, for example, that something less than a full four-year degree may qualify the person, then that occupation is being questioned. Indeed, the USCIS recently issued a memo actually rescinding guidance from the year 2000 in which the memo stated that entry level computer programmer occupations generally won't qualify for an H1B because the Occupational Outlook Handbook stated that those people may enter perhaps with an associate's degree. What other issues do we see in terms of specialty occupation? Uh, USCIS is questioning um, as qualifying specialty occupations, jobs that may allow individuals to qualify um, based upon multiple degrees. Um, The USCIS in these requests for evidence, uh, questions whether or not in fact the position will qualify, Um, if the occupational outlook handbook um, or even the employer's letter of support indicates that potentially many degrees, not just one degree may qualify someone for the position. Uh, One classic example is a market research analyst that is now being questioned because the occupational outlook handbook says that individuals may qualify with degrees in various fields, including statistics, math, or computer science. Um, We're also seeing uh, similar RFEs for other positions where individuals may qualify based upon a number of different degrees, such as financial analysts, um, other where they may qualify with either a marketing or a business degree. We also see a number of RFEs particularly in computer occupations um, where the individual may qualify not just with a computer science degree but degrees in various fields of engineering. USCIS is questioning um, many engineering degrees and if the employer allows not only a computer science degree but perhaps other degrees in engineering. um, We often see RFEs in that area. We are seeing RFEs as well with new and emerging roles, uh, data scientists, business intelligence. Um, A lot of those roles are not clearly defined yet in the Occupational Outlook Handbook. They're often uh, not a clear category um, under the OES for the LCAs as well. Um, So we're seeing USCIS often questioning those. Indeed, many of those occupations as well may also qualify uh, based upon more than one degree. For example, um, many employers will hire data scientists if they either have degrees in computer science or statistics. So these are some of the trends that we're seeing in terms of specialty occupations and problem occupations. We're also seeing USCIS questioning often the LCA category. When USCIS is reviewing the applications that are submitted, um, they're actually looking at the LCA and the category selected. And so for example, um, they'll review the LCA, they'll review the job duties in the position, and they may question whether or not the employer actually picked the right LCA category. Um, often, this question does not come up, however, until the RFE stage, and when the USCIS questions the relevant occupational category, they say that you can either overcome that question or submit an LCA that was certified in advance of the filing to respond to that request. So one of the things that we have been doing in terms of a creative approach in responding is if there is no clear LCA category and perhaps more than one may qualify, at times we will actually get more than one LCA certified to prepare in advance for such uh, a request questioning the LCA. Um, In the past, we had also seen LCA questions with regard to wage levels, particularly level one. Um, Luckily, we are seeing less in terms of the level one specialty occupation RFE, um, questioning whether or not the job actually qualifies because it is an entry level job. Um, Perhaps we will still see some of those. but. At least at this point, we see less. What other potential issues do we see for our H-1B cap filings? We see um, issues related to the unlawful presence memo. Um, In August of this year, um, the USCIS finalized an unlawful presence memo that applied to F, M, and J visa holders that changed the rules that have been in effect for 20 years in that unlawful presence memo uh, the USCIS said that unlike the prior rules where there would not be a status violation unless there was either a USCIS determination or a court determination that memo states that a status violation could be found and begin to accrue unlawful presence as of the date of the status violation. Consistent with this new unlawful presence memo that was effective beginning in August, um, we see more and more RFEs, particularly for those FJ and M, uh, questioning whether or not the individual has in fact maintained status the entire time they've been in the United States. So, Bill, do you want to talk about how we start the process of identifying the cap cases?
0: Absolutely. Thanks, Elise. So, as employers go through their list of individuals, you want to think about Uh, doing cases as early as possible. And this is something that's been a reality for a very long time. We know uh, that there have been more requests for uh, visas available than there are spots available, uh, typically two to three times as many in our first initial application period. That means we want to make sure that we file a petition each time a person is eligible uh, during another period of work authorization. So we'll talk about you know, groups of people whom you might have in your employment right now. You want to try and identify that group of people and begin thinking about putting in the H-1B for them this year. Uh, the first rule is going to be new hires who are being uh, hired and who don't may not even yet be working for you. These may be new graduates who are coming to your company and who may not even have their, their final degree yet. If this individual has a bachelor's degree in a related field, you can file an H-1B for them now, even before they have become your employee. So for example, if you're recruiting an individual who's uh, just about to graduate with their master's degree in electrical engineering, they also happen to have a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, you're going to hire them as an electrical engineer, uh, you can go ahead and file based on the fact that they have the bachelor's degree now, Uh, even though they haven't even started working for you yet. So even identifying that level of uh, kind of uh, incoming employees uh, is important because that would give the person uh, up to four chances at the H-1B lottery. Uh, They'll have three years of optional practical training at the end of their degree, this would be uh, one chance in the lottery before that three years of OPT started, then they'd have three more chances. Uh, and we certainly have seen over the last years there are individuals who who do not get selected in the lottery even with multiple attempts. We've had people whose positions have been filed three and four and five times because each time is a pure coin flip, right, uh, they're, they're, uh, or, or a dice roll, uh, uh, depending on uh, whether you're in the regular cap or the master's degree cap. So again, multiple chances in that lottery are really important. Uh, So the second group of people, obviously, is people who are working for you on OPT. They'll either have one or two chances for people who are not earning STEM degrees, the STEM degree holders, science, technology, engineering, math. Those folks are allowed to get a two-year extension of of their OPT. That gives them additional chances in the lottery, but everyone on OPT should have a lottery petition filed for them every time that it's possible. Uh, Another group of people who you may want to consider are people working for you on L1B visas. Those are folks who are working on specialty occupations, sorry, visas that require specialized knowledge where the person worked for you uh, in a company overseas. Some L1B visa holders, if you want to keep them beyond the five-year period that they're in L1B, would be able to move to a green card within that five-year period. But some, principally people born in India, China, and the Philippines, may not be able to make it to the green card process before their L1B expires. The L1B visa cannot be extended even if there is a backlog in the green card system. So during the person's L1B time, it may make sense if your interest is in keeping the person in the United States for the long term that you file an H-1B petition for them. Another group of employees who you may want to consider filing an H-1B for are folks in TN category. If you have an individual who's a TN, uh, that is a person from Canada or Mexico under the North American Free Trade Agreement. Uh, The good news is that the current version of the revised NAFTA, does not include any changes to the TN visa category. Uh, So there aren't any advantageous changes, adding new occupations, for example, but there aren't any detrimental changes that would limit the TN visa either. Uh, So assuming that that revised uh, North American Free Trade Agreement does get through the Senate, uh, and of course there, there aren't any changes, there's less worry in the TN community about the visas not being available anymore. However, there has always been an issue for TN visa holders that if you're looking to move them through the permanent residence process, particularly if it's a person who has a Canadian passport but was born in India or China, that it is better to have that person in H-1B uh, during the time that they're waiting for their visa priority date to become current So if you have an individual in that circumstance, you may want to review your TN visa holders and see whether there's anyone for whom a uh, An H-1B might be appropriate And of course you can certainly bring those folks to our attention and We'll help you think through whether the investment in the H-1B process makes sense or whether we can move forward with a green card uh, given their current situation Uh, The L-1B is for people who have worked for your company overseas and who are able to transfer to the United States But there may be people for whom that L-1B visa is more difficult to obtain than an H-1B visa is so if there are individuals who might need to be transferred to the United States in an L-1B who maybe don't have a year's worth of employment with a company overseas or who would like to get here, but uh, uh, maybe in a job where specialty occupation definition is easier to meet than the specialized knowledge test that it takes for L1Bs. I'm thinking principally here of people whose expertise is in technology or uh, uh, sometimes in in other kinds of uh, specializations um, where it's not clear that the company is doing a different version of that technology than is than is available. That may be a situation where an H-1B visa is uh, easier to get than an L-1B visa will be in today's environment. So consider those overseas employees who might need to be sent here. Uh, the other group you want to look for is people who are on the H-4EAD. Uh, as uh, was mentioned just a bit ago, right now the H-4EAD proposed Revocation has not been published. However, uh, we do know that the agency is still committed to revoking that H4 EAD. The, uh, the litigation around the viability of the H4 EAD is still out there. So, uh, you know, H4 EAD holders, you should probably seriously consider uh, filing a cap case for those individuals if you're looking to keep them in the longer term and if they're working for you in a specialty occupation eligible position. The final group I'll mention, not because we can file an H-1 for them, but you know, because they may have work authorization uh, that may be running out, is individuals who have uh, work authorization documents provided under various uh, humanitarian programs, so the DACA program, which was young people brought to the United States as children uh, who were under the uh, Obama administration able to apply for this DACA protection and a work permit. Um, individuals who have TPS who, who came here who, from uh, various countries, Nepal, uh, El Salvador, Honduras, places where there were uh, difficulties uh, that uh, they sought protection for. Those humanitarian programs, uh, this administration has been looking very seriously at ending them and so individuals may come to you and say, will you file an H-1 petition for me? Uh, Because if this DACA program goes away, I'd I'd like to consider that as an option. Uh, All I will say is that those situations should really be reviewed carefully with an attorney, because it's not entirely clear that the person would be able to become an H-1B visa holder even if you got a petition approved for them. There are complications around the person's uh, presence in the United States and whether that would disqualify them from being able to go out of the country and get an H-1 visa. In all likelihood, the status of having Docker or TPS means that they could not get into H-1B status from within the United States. Uh, With that said, Absent an H-1B petition, it's not worth talking about as an option. So, you know, do consider looking at the records you have of individuals employed under DACA um, and similar programs and uh, review whether it might be beneficial to have those folks uh, benefit from an H-1B petition, perhaps. Uh, So with that, I'll turn it back to Michelle. Uh, Let's talk about some strategic advice that we have for folks as we get into this process and as we start preparing uh, those petitions all
2: right thank you Bill yeah so we've talked a lot about the changes and the difficulties and let's talk about how to actually plan and prepare for um, all of those items so the first thing we're gonna say um, which is actually a little bit different from what we said last year because the situation has changed, we've we've seen a lot of change in how the government is handling H-1B filings and how, what the information they're requesting. So, you know, we would stress getting more information up front. And what we mean by that is, at this point, we're going to expect and request for evidence. The rates of RFEs for um, cap cases is up to about 38 to 50%. From last, for last year. So, you know, one in two chance, once you've been selected in the lottery, that you're going to get a request for evidence. So let's get some of that information up front. Let's, let's make sure the case is gonna be really viable. And what we'd be looking at are the criteria that Elise laid out earlier. Do you have similar workers in those roles? Do they normally require a bachelor's degree in a specific field? What are the group degrees they require? If your job rec or your job advertisement says you would normally require a degree in um, electrical engineering or a related engineering field but, you know, three people in that division have a degree in business administration and that was acceptable for the engineering job, let's talk through that. What was in that criteria that allowed them to still be qualified? Um, because those are going to be the kinds of issues we're going to need to work through in the situation where we get a request for evidence. What's the importance of the role to your business? Um, what are the very specific job duties? Um, what are the technologies that are used and how are they you know, utilized in the big picture of your business? The reason being that a lot of times job advertisements and such are, are fairly general or are utilized from multiple positions. You can be you know, a network engineer doing lots of different kinds of things, but maybe the job advertisement is just a general network engineering job. Let's try to get a lot of detail about that job to see about those specialty aspects. The more detail we can add in, the, the stronger the case is going to be. Um, And also, working through how the specific degree requirement actually prepares someone for the role. Why is that specific degree required? As Elise mentioned, you know, there's those business intelligence jobs, a lot of times those might require a business administration degree or a mathematics degree or an engineering degree because there's quantitative principles that are encapsulated in any of those degree programs. And so let's kind of talk through if there's a reason that there's a variety of degrees that would be acceptable for those jobs. So getting that information at the outset is gonna be really helpful um, in preparing the case and really vetting it to make sure they're gonna be as strong as possible. Um, You know, as I mentioned, the RFE rate is is fairly high compared to what it was in prior years. I remember a few years ago being able to count on less than one hand how many RFEs I got for a cap case and now, you know, they seem to be inundating us. You know, so what an RFE will mean practically is timing considerations along with the amount of work that goes into preparing an RFE response. So let's break that down, the timing of an RFE is it can can extend the processing time of of a case significantly Um, you have three months to prepare the response to an RFE, and um, a lot of times it will take those full three months we need a lot of information from a manager from HR um, and you know we work with them very closely to get that information but to go around and around it does take quite a bit of time and then the government processing of the RFE can also take a long time. Um, and I'm gonna talk a little bit more about timing in a little bit, but just, you know, to think through the timing of those cases with the RFE's um, as well. Um, also to look at the status history of the person for the RFE. So a lot of RFEs we get are on specialty occupation or as Elise mentioned, level one. There's sometimes questions about an alternate wage survey to make sure it's suitable. But the, I would say the probably the second biggest hit we see is looking at the status history of a person if they're not in a you know the normal status. So for instance, if somebody is on um, what's called curricular practical training, um, we would have to show that even though they might be working full-time pursuant to that curricular practical training that they're still attending school. So looking at those questions, strategizing upfront how we should handle it. We might not wanna do that case as a change of status. We might wanna do it as what's called a consular notify. So those status issues are not brought up um, at the um, USCIS level. They'd be raised later at the consulate um, where we see a lot more leniency on that. Um, okay, so thinking about those kinds of issues and in, in anticipation of those RFEs is really important. Um, Then setting expectations with managers, and this is where I'm gonna focus a little bit more on timing. Managers obviously have a business need and they have a business need now if they're hiring somebody in that role right now. Um, So saying that the H-1B cap wouldn't take effect until October 1st and then possibly later if the case lingers with the immigration service for a long time is never something that a manager wants to hear. we still have cap cases from last year that are pending with the government. Just last week, the government said we can upgrade those cases to premium processing, meaning that we'll get a decision in 15 days or a review of the case in 15 days. Okay, so you know we're talking about 10 months of those cases being processed by the government. Um, now, if that person is on what's called cap gap, um, and that's where they're, OPT had expired um, after the H-1B was filed, but we know the H-1B was selected, they can continue working for you. But they can continue working for you until September 30th. When the regulations were written, I don't think anybody ever anticipated it would take 10 months for an H-1B to get adjudicated. And so there's no um, rule that extends that period of time. So looking at those employees and also planning with the managers that if somebody's in that situation, they might have to stop working from you from you know October 1st until the case is decided if it's approved. And that can be a big shock to managers, right? They don't they don't necessarily expect that. They just assume it's kind of been taken care of. Um, and, you know, it's a little crazy for anybody, but especially for managers who might not be in the immigration world all the time, that a case could take 10 months to get a decision on it. Um, again, you know, premium processing for last year was suspended and was just, um, uh, Became eligible again this last week. So, we also anticipate that premium processing will not be available for this year's cap season. Um, so, you know, let's just assume these cases are going to take just as long to get a decision on um, this year as, as last year. Okay. Um, and also, planning with managers, you know, we talked a little bit about the RFEs and, and getting that information up front but also, you know, speaking to managers honestly about the amount of work that goes into the request for evidence I think is really important. Um, A lot of times they'll say, well, I thought I took care of this H-1B back in, you know, March, why are you coming to me now in October or November asking for all this additional detail? So, you know, planning for that with the managers is also really important so they understand um, why the case is taking so long, why so much detail is required, as well is really important. And then, you know, talking through backup plans, right? We know the H-1B goes into a lottery. We've talked about this over and over again. And now we're in a little bit of a different adjudication climate where it's a little bit tougher to get those cases through, get them through quickly. So, um, you know, as Bill mentioned, there's all those statuses that um, we would want people to move off of for H-1B. But there's still options to move people onto that. Um, if it fits them, right? If somebody's from Canada or Mexico and the job fits the TN, let's look at that as an option to keep them here and keep them working for you, even if this H-1B doesn't go through. Maybe um, going abroad for a year is a good option, and then we could bring them back on the L-1 while simultaneously trying to get them the H-1Bs. If somebody is born in, uh, a country that's not China or India, we could even start the green card process right away. Um, and that might only take a couple of years, three years. Um, and to be honest, it might take that many tries at the lottery to get them into the H-1B. So doing these things simultaneously or considering them as backup plans um, early on, I think is is fairly useful. Um, so we can kind of work through how to keep your employees here and how to keep them working for you. Okay. Um, And then um, I think uh, next up, we're going to turn it over to Bill to take any questions that have come up.
0: Thank you, Michelle. So let's uh, 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 go ahead and put your questions in the question box if you have those. Uh, We will address a few of them that have come up uh, during the process. So there was a question which said, our, our nonprofit employers uh, uh, need to worry about this. And uh, that's a great question because you know, we were focusing on the needs of our CAP subject uh, employers. And some nonprofit employers are subject to the CAP. Remember that just being a nonprofit does not make you exempt from the CAP. Uh, for example, we work uh, regularly with a nonprofit healthcare care provider um, who uh, is, is not affiliated with a university and who does not do research, so they are subject to the CAP even though they are a nonprofit. So, uh, just quickly for those who need a refresher on the rules, uh, you are exempt from the CAP if you are uh, a university or college, so an institute of higher education. You are exempt from the CAP if, uh, and sorry, a nonprofit university uh, of higher education. The other uh, folks who are exempt are. Nonprofit organizations that are either research organizations, so a, a nonprofit or a governmental research organization is going to be exempt from the cap, um, and a uh, nonprofit affiliated with a university. So many university affiliated hospitals or teaching hospitals, for example, are going to fall within that exemption from the cap. So uh, that's who's exempt from the cap. If you are exempt from the cap, of course, you can apply all year round. Uh, And for H-1B visa holders at a cap-exempt employer, remember that cap exemption only applies for as long as you are employed by or at the cap-exempt employer. If you were to switch to a private company, for example, you would need to go through this H-1B lottery and you'd have to have that company willing to wait until October 1st uh, for you to be able to start with them. So, If you are thinking about switching employment and you're currently at a cap-exempt employer, uh, now would be the time to find that position and have that cap-exempt employer, uh, sorry, cap-subject employer file a new petition uh, for you. Uh, So uh, another question that comes in, I'll I'll ask uh, this for Elise, Elise, uh, is it possible for an employer to file multiple H-1B petitions for a person? Uh, And is it possible for multiple employers to file an H-1B petition for a person?
2: Yeah,
1: I mean, Bill, that's a great question. um, And we get it quite often. Um, So there is a a ban on an employer, one employer filing multiple H-1Bs for an, an individual. Um, We have seen um, USCIS in the last couple of years, um, if the lottery is conducted and they find out that there were multiple H-1Bs by one company for the same employee, they have invalidated um, those H-1Bs and not allowed them to proceed. Um, It is possible, however, for um, one individual to have more than one H-1B petition pending if in fact, those H-1B petitions are filed by different companies. Um, We often handle H-1Bs with our uh, employer clients um, and sometimes after we obtain the H-1 approvals, we find out that the beneficiary, in fact, also had another case filed with another employer. Under the rules, that is acceptable if those employers indeed
0: are distinct entities. And I should point out that uh, we have seen requests for evidence uh, asking just that question. Uh, you know, uh, we see that this person had multiple petitions filed for them sometimes two and three and four years ago, uh, now you new employer, you're going to have to prove that that old petition was valid, that it was a real job, that the person really worked there ideally. So, you know, it it is something where you have to be prepared to go work for that other employer if you're going to have them file the petition for you, because otherwise immigration may ask about whether it was uh, a real petition or not.
2: And that can be that can be years down the line. So I actually just had this come up for a case that um, about honestly about eight or nine years ago um, was the cap petition and they questioned that um, and the person didn't effectuate their status and so then it was ultimately revoked and all subsequent H-1Bs were revoked. So it can have very real consequences. So it's important that you know foreign nationals are adhering to the rules of the H-1B program. Yeah
1: and I want to highlight a phrase that Michelle used, effectuate that status. USCIS has been looking very closely at those H-1Bs um, to make sure that they began working for the petitioning employer effective in October. We often have questions, particularly from students who were on OPT, who may have been with the petitioning employer, but want to leave before October 1st. USCIS is often questioning the cases if they in fact leave before October 1st.
0: And just a quick reminder for everybody, if you do have a question, feel free to use the questions box that's going to be on the right hand side. There's a little arrow you can click and make it a little bigger so you can see the questions. You can also undock that and move it over to the side uh, so you get a little more space to type that in. So uh, we'll go to the next question. Michelle. Um, Premium processing was just restored for the 2019 cap, which even though we're sitting in 2019, we're actually talking about the cases we filed almost a year ago. Uh, Is premium processing going to be available for the 2020 cap, the cases that we're going to be filing uh, uh, in uh, in just a couple months?
2: Sure, so we don't have any official announcement on that yet, but I'm going to guess no. Um, We have seen them suspend premium processing for H-1B cap filings um, at the time they were filed for the last few years, and I do expect that trend to continue. Um, And the fact that they just allowed it for um, H-1B cap filings from last year um, that are now long pending, I think, just show that they're not going to be ready for premium processing for next year, and it'll likely not be back up for a very long time. So we would say do not plan to have premium processing in place for this year's cap season um, until maybe next winter.
0: Great. Now, at least another question came out. Uh, it's a little complicated. So this is a person who was uh, An H-1B before they were they were subject to the cap. They were five years in H-1B status. But for the last year, they've been working overseas. Uh, they've been outside the United States. Now, can that person get filed for in the cap? And, uh, it, you know, because they, they only have one year left or how, how long? How does that work? That's an excellent question.
1: Um, So if the person has been outside the United States for one full year, they are eligible to file under the cap um, so that they can renew their timeline and get a full potential six years in H-1B status. So filing under the cap for such a person that has been outside for the full year um, actually gives that person opportunity to stay in the U.S. longer. Um, I do want to caution folks, though, they there's not an absolute requirement that that person file under the cap. What if they file under the cap and they're not selected under the lottery? Even if you've been outside the United States for a year or potentially even longer, there is governmental guidance that that person can recapture whatever is left of their six years in H-1B status and have an H-1B application filed that is not subject to the cap. So that person would actually have more than one option.
0: And could possibly use both. Uh, yes. So, so you know, get in the yeah. cap, and if not, get here and and of course deal with uh, the 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 upcoming H1B cap very quickly. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Uh, so let me uh, put a you on the spot, Michelle, and and can you give us a couple of options? for those people who don't make the cap? And, and really, I guess, it's a good question because I think you have to be thinking about what's the plan for the person who doesn't make the cap uh, even as you're starting. Can What what are some of the things we've seen people do?
2: Sure, of course, of course. So, um, you know, the first thing I always look at is what their current status is um, and if they're eligible for an extension in that status. So, for instance, if they're on a TN, um, and we know now that, the NAFTA program, the TN program is continuing. Can we extend that TN? Um, can we get more chances so they can through um, the lottery while we extend that TN? Um, or same with L1 and other categories. Um, the most common we see H-1B-CAP is for students, right? They're on F1. Um, they get a year of um, what's called optional practical training where they can work, and that's probably when the, these companies hire them. So first, what are those dates of the OPT? Can we can we squeeze in maybe two two cap cases, right? If let's say, as Bill mentioned, if they're getting a master's and they're graduating in May, but you already know you're probably going to want to hire this person. Um if that OPT is gonna start in May, we can we can get two shots at the cap. So strategizing that accordingly. Um, but also looking if their um, their degree program is eligible what's, for what's called a STEM extension of that OPT. So mm-hmm. for people in STEM fields, certain specific um, degree programs are eligible for that additional extension, which could potentially give us three or possibly four chances at the lottery. Um, so, seeing if they're eligible for that is obviously an important first move. And then something that is an option, um, but I caution um, everybody to consider that is um, going back to school. So, if somebody has, you know, maxed out their time on their OPT and their STEM OPT, and you know, they just haven't had a Gotten in this lottery yet? um, You know, going back for another degree program is an option. You can, um, some schools will allow you to work full time while um, going through that degree program. Um, So looking at those programs, seeing if that's an option for the person, obviously that's a big personal decision. It's a financial commitment, a time commitment, but that is an option that we often see utilized, um, you know, especially by people who have a master's degree or maybe is interested in another master's degree or um, got their bachelor's and and wants to seek out a master's degree. So looking at that, um, the only thing I say about that is obviously make sure they're actually going to school. you can't just say you're going to be a student and you know um, enroll, but then never actually do any of the things the students are required to do. So that's an important
0: point. Yeah, I would say that uh, many uh, programs offer what is uh, sometimes called day one CPT, uh, curricular practical training that's tied to the master's degree that people are earning. Those programs get a certain amount of scrutiny, and, and certainly Michelle, to your point about making sure you're going to school and have good records, and that it's a real academic program, in addition to providing CPD, is really important because we see that years later that may be questioned. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Obviously, a couple of other options. You know, is, is there an H-4 that you can do because you have an H-1B spouse? Are there employment options abroad? Those are all non-ideal, uh, but you know, uh, something that should be explored. Uh, as that CAP uh, uh, alternative. Um, Elise, a uh, question here on renewals. Uh, uh, CAP obviously doesn't affect renewals with the same employer. Are we seeing any changes in terms of extensions for people who are already on H-1B?
1: We are. Um, so, I, I talked uh, earlier in the program about trends that we're seeing in terms of requests for evidence, questioning specialty occupation. Um, Those trends apply equally to renewals now Um, you know, recently the government removed any deference to a prior adjudication for an H-1B. No longer can you say, well, my H-1B was approved previously, Um, I'll just submit the same paperwork that was submitted before and I should get an approval and um, no deference to prior filings. Um, USCIS is looking at each case anew on its merits. So expect for H-1B renewals to see some of those same specialty occupation issues in terms of questioning potential LCA issues and the like. Um, USCIS is not treating renewals any more kindly than the
0: cap cases. All right. Um, uh, there were some questions we mentioned, the H4 EAD earlier. Uh, somebody wanted to know the timing on when that regulation. Uh, we don't know. Uh, it, it's very hard to anticipate. And then kind of the knock-on question of, well, you know, what about people who have an EAD on the day it's canceled? Will, will they be able to renew that EAD? Uh, my guess would be no. Will they be able to keep working as long as that EAD is valid? My prediction is yes, because this administration, when it has canceled other kinds of programs like that, has uh, sort of given people one last year or one last renewal and has said, you know, this is a change going forward. Um, we, we, we aren't canceling existing work permits, but we're warning you early that you're not going to be able to get renewed. So what I've been telling people is, if you're eligible for the H4EAD, go ahead and get it. Um, you, you probably wouldn't be able to get a new one, but you'll at least be able to work out, in all likelihood, the uh, approval that you have uh, if that program is canceled um finally i had a question here if you have an f1 uh employee they're on opt they're out of status in some way does it put them in any kind of risk to file an h1b petition on their behalf uh well that does uh create a uh an opportunity that the student will be able to fix fix his or her status um so uh, there's nothing special about filing an H-1B petition, uh, I think, which which raises or lowers the student's risk. Uh, if they're out of status, they, they're obviously at some risk of being identified uh, by immigration, and being put into a removal proceeding. Um, and uh, there's currently a change in policy that says they may be accruing what's called unlawful presence. So um, while that is a very much a case-by-case uh, decision, I would say Uh, simply the act of putting in an H-1B probably doesn't materially change that student's risk. Um, You know, again, this is a situation where... uh, Your mileage may vary. Uh, uh, It's difficult to predict exactly, so uh, very much a a case-by-case analysis should be done there.
1: Yeah, and I just want to highlight something on that, too, is I think some people think if they're out of status and then they file a petition, like something under the cap, and it's selected, that that might somehow cure the fact that the person's been out of status. Under the unlawful presence memo, however, filing an H-1B petition would not cure that unlawful presence. And in fact, because of the timeline with an H-1B adjudication, it's very likely because it's going to be more than 180 days before the status starts that the person, if they were out of status when filed the H-1B, if they did not cure that defect, that they would actually be subject potentially to a three-year bar.
0: Yeah, and there's some litigation that's ongoing about that, uh, which our firm is actually uh, involved in. We've asked the judge to uh, stop that rule because right. it would really start taking effect uh, uh, at the uh, end of, uh, at the middle February of next day. week, February 5th. Um, it's a little early. We don't yet have an answer on that. But um, you know, I think students who are out of status need uh, to consult with a lawyer right away around that. Um, OK, we're almost at the bottom of the hour. I have one last question here uh, asking about whether a new LCA is required for those H-1B extensions that we were talking about. Um, and uh, and they are, right? So every H-1B has to have an LCA filed with it. It has to be in the correct category. So absolutely. Uh, uh, each H-1B will have a new LCA, uh, a new opportunity for the Immigration Service to question the LCA category and the wage level that are being offered um, in that extension. Bill, Uh,
1: Bill, what if someone filed under the cap last year and they were not selected and that employer wants to use the same LCA again um, this year? Can the employer do that?
0: uh, Absolutely. The LCA, of course, is only going to be valid for two years rather than one, but uh, very often the employer may choose to uh, to use that LCA. So um, yeah, that, that is still valid unless it was revoked by the employer, those LCAs uh, remain valid until their expiration date. Um, so yeah, certainly there. All
1: yeah, right? and, and that is an option for employers to potentially save some time and money, but they will only get the two years remaining on that LCA.
0: Right, right. So obviously a cost benefit thing you'll want to talk about, Ana. Uh, Case by case basis. So, thank you very much uh, for attending this. Um, our contact information is showing up on the screen. You can also find it on our website. Uh, you can follow us on all your favorite social medias. You can listen to our podcasts. Uh, you can rate us on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and all those other places. Uh, and uh, we, of course, would love to hear from you by phone, by email, uh, however you prefer to stay connected. Thank you very much for joining. Uh, if you would like a uh, uh, recording of this, uh, please uh, reach out and contact one of us and we'll be happy to connect you with that. And you'll be receiving a survey shortly. We greatly appreciate the feedback that you can give us about how we can make this even more useful for you uh, as you do. If you missed any other questions, feel free to email us. That's everything I have. Thanks everyone for joining and take care.